Who wants to start? Peter, please. What makes you hopeful? What makes you hopeful? What makes me hopeful is I'm a parent. And I don't have the luxury of defeatism or cynicism. Uh, Mm. What makes me hopeful is the gospel. The gospel is all about hope. (laughs) And if we can somehow reappropriate the gospel, I think we have we we have hope. Uh, It's a tough year, Uh, and and if if anything I I said suggested my enthusiasm for the other candidate, I have to say that that's not true either. uh, it's a deeply flawed, flawed candidate. Both of them are deeply flawed. I think one is clearly more flawed than the other, but uh, they're both deeply flawed candidates, it seems to me. And, uh, you know, when I do f- succumb to despair, I keep thinking, this is a great and wonderful country. This is the best we can do, <laughs> these two candidates. Uh, I, 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 I find that discouraging. But I, I don't think I can succumb to despair. I think you have to... You have to be hopeful. Uh, the gospel is all about hope, it seems to me, and and uh, and, and we, we've got to, you know, we, we have to let our light shine in the darkness. The gospel of John is wonderful. It's uh, it's all about light, and uh, somehow we have to keep the light burning uh, in the midst of darkness. So, if I can promote one of your other books, oh, please do. In, in God in the White House, <laughs> you basically mention how. Uh, evangelicalism and religion as a whole have attempted to make these votes, put these particular people in power. And yep. if we could get these people in these places, then the agenda, the, the religious or the evangelical agenda, could therefore move forward. Yeah. And one of the things that you point out is that is completely untrue. Yeah. You, you work to get these right people in place. And the very agendas that you think that you want to go forward are actually not taking place, specifically about the abortion issue, yeah, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then you have this quote, w- which you mentioned in your talk, um, that I, I would love you to, to um, just uh, explain a little bit more. The past, this is from Making of Evangelicalism, the past continues to warn against the seductions of power and influence. Evangelicals though no longer mired in their subculture with its attendant dangers of insularity, must position themselves once again at the margins of society. This is, after all, where Jesus conducted his earthly ministry. It is also where 19th century evangelicals were most effective. I'm not arguing here that voices of faith should not make themselves heard in the arena of public discourse, not at all. I happen to think that public discourse would be impoverished without these voices. But... We who aspire to be followers of Jesus must never confuse political access with prophetic witness. I love that line. We confuse political access with prophetic witness. I forgot I wrote that. And I, and I think when I, and I really appreciate the question, what gives us hope? And I think I, when I read that, I'm like, oh, not getting the candidate we think we want is irrelevant or not as important as we may think it is when it comes to how we should be living and yeah and i think no it's it's important it's important that we're that we be responsible citizens and i think we have to sure yeah yeah. to to make our judgments uh the best we can uh but I, i i do think that that religion and faith always functions best from the margins and not in the councils of power because once you aspire after political influence, you do lose your prophetic voice. 
Um, I, I, I just don't think that point can be emphasized enough. I, no. Like, I, I've yeah. read this from you multiple times. Not in power, on yeah. the margins. Yeah, yeah calling people to account. Yeah, I think, yeah. I, I think, I think so. I, I think that's where... I, I think that's where the faith functions most effectively is, is from the margins, um, and I think the religious right is a great example. You know, because you know Falwell and others helped get Reagan elected in 1980, and you know it's, there's a lot of other things going on in that election. Uh, and by the way, there, I recommend a, a book. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, they, they they threw their weight behind Reagan and the Republican Party, and you know, and they were just you know. And actually, there are contemporaries who talk about this. You know, they were so happy to be able to go to the White House and you know, kind of hang out with the, with the, the, the people in the West Wing and, and so forth. And they shut up. They they lost their voice. Yeah. Uh, and 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 nobody in the in the Reagan White House took them seriously for that reason. I mean, we talked about abortion, right? Reagan ran twice for president, promising to end abortion, even though as governor of California, he had signed into law the most liberal abortion bill in the country in 1967. He ran for the presidency promising to outlaw abortion. He made no serious effort to, to do that uh, whatsoever. But, you know, following others, oh, that's all right. You know, you know at least we've got our access and, right. and what did it get them? I, I, think, I think you can look back on the history of the religious right and say with, some, with great deal of justification, what did you get? What, what did you come away with? I, you know, I can't think of anything. I mean, you know, you, uh, judicial appointments, yes, and and, the, and those are important. You you got some judicial, judicial appointments, but in terms of substantive, uh, legislative, or even uh, regulatory change, uh, you know, I, I'd be hard pressed. Lester. Oh, and and then Dan. Yeah. So just following that. So just following that. Um, based off of just your work, what have been some of the conversations that have come out about this? Because I feel like you're just pointing it out that that didn't work. Have people, like as a whole, as the evangelical community as a whole, started to talk about this? Uh, about this whole situation? The yeah, of just like trying to get people in politics and it not working. I mean, you know, the media portrays one thing, but are there conversations behind closed doors and yeah. academic institutions talking yeah, about this? Yeah, there, there's some. I, you, know, um, you know, people have asked, where's the religious left? And apparently there was an article somewhere about this yeah. recently. And, and you know, my, my first answer is, well, uh, none of us has a media empire behind him <laughs> the way that, that Falwell and, and Robertson did and, and, and Dobson. Dobson had a huge media empire behind him. Uh, and and that's, that's part of the reason. But I think there's a, there's a growing sense of, of, of what, uh, almost urgency on the part of, of many evangelicals saying, you know, we need to be true to our faith. We need to recover some of the things I was, I've been talking about today. And part of that is generational. Uh, for me, the, the 2008 election was really, really important and pivotal in many ways because you had, during that election, I don't know if you remember, you had uh, both Charles Colson, Chuck Colson, and... Dobson saying during that, uh, that election, and they were explicit about it, said, they said the only salient moral issues are abortion and same-sex marriage. I mean, that, that's almost verbatim what they were saying. And what happened in 2008, I think, uh, and I picked this up when I was on Christian college campuses in, uh, in particular, was a, a younger generation of evangelicals who said, wait a minute, we see a whole broad spectrum of issues that we consider moral issues. Hunger, Poverty, 
AIDS. Uh, the environment is huge for this younger generation of evangelicals. And so they really rejected um, uh, Dobson and, and, and Colson in particular, the, the old guard religious right. And according to polling data, they, they gravitated to Obama over McCain in, in much larger numbers than evangelicals had in, uh, in the Kerry uh, Bush election four years earlier. So I think that was one of the, the, the changes uh, that was going on. Um, but yeah, I think, I, think, uh, I think there is a younger generation is willing to be, you know, take these things a bit more seriously. But that, that, that's my hope. You know, that's, that's where the hope comes from, is that there is this uh, younger generation who wants to be uh, more serious about these things and not merely buy into uh, a party ideology uh, that I think is utterly bankrupt. I mean, how... I'm sorry, I'm going on. And on. Go okay, so that's great that the younger generations, but I think part of, part of what's behind the Lester's question is you still have the established religious right continuing to do their... Is that... Yeah. yeah but Post what? Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, and... and um, Right, it, and it's it's a matter of calling or vocation too. I, um, you know, I I sometimes chastise myself. Why am I now not out knocking on doors and things like that? But I I, I kind of feel like I, I'm probably spending my time better by writing op eds and, and and things like that, and coming here to places like this. Uh, Facebook Silicon Valley. So yeah, everybody, right. grab an article and stuff. Okay, Dan yeah. uh, had his hand up. Please. Yeah. Let's repeat the question yeah. just for the, the tape. Given the history of abortion in, in politics and evangelicalism, that it, it's basically a myth, what would you say to people voting today yeah. that are still touting that as the primary issue yeah. upon which to make a decision for this season of election? If that's a yeah, fair... I, I, yeah, I, I guess I'm always suspicious of single-issue politics, although I, you know, I, I kind of gravitate toward that as well. Um, you know, for me, issues of the environment and climate change and so forth are pretty important. Um, the problem with the abortion issue is that we've been locked in this stale argument for how many decades now? Four or five decades. Uh, this goes nowhere. Um, the only thing that both sides agree on in the abortion issue is that making abortion illegal is not going to stop abortions. That's the only thing they agree on. Um, I, I've come to the view, I have no interest in making abortion illegal. I would like to make it unthinkable. That is to say, we need to change the whole conversation from the conversation surrounding legality to a, congregation, a conversation about morality. I think that's the only effective way to, to really make progress in abortion, which I acknowledge is utterly reprehensible. Um, I, I think it's a tragedy in, 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 in so many ways. So when you're looking at the two candidates now, you know, I, I guess that's what's keeping you know, some of these evangelical leaders uh, behind Donald Trump because at least in the latest incarnation of Donald Trump, he's now against abortion. And, you know, who knows if that's, that's sincere or not. I mean, I 
tend to try to take people at their words, so I guess, I guess you have to do that. Um, but if that's your only criterion, I feel like there's a, there's a, a far more historical weight behind what you just said um, <laughs> that I, I'd like to just like shine some light on. We've been working so hard at trying to make this illegal yeah. rather than trying to make this unthinkable. Right. And by unthinkable, you, you mean thinking about the, the ethics and the morality of it right. rather than just simply getting a law on the books or making right. it, the Supreme Court make, it, right. make a decision. Right. Um, and then if I could just simply add, because there's plenty of us in this room who've, who've begun to have the conversation, even if you are 100% against abortions, uh, there's an argument to be made that a different political platform could actually make a difference in sure. reducing those abortions, sure. as opposed to like what you just said, making it illegal we know doesn't work. Right. But there are a whole bunch of other social institutions sure. and other constructs and other, um, sure. uh, other ways in which policies can be made around after birth care sure. and yeah. poverty, et cetera, that can, yeah. and contraception and women's sure. health, et cetera, that could actually do the, the reduction of abortions. Right. And I would, I would not oppose um, the government funding um, anti-abortion public service commercials and so forth saying, don't do it or you know, look for alternatives or something. I wouldn't have any problem with that at all. So, so yeah, I think there are other ways to, to address the issue. Making it illegal is just not going to... Uh, I mean, uh, it, it's, yeah, I, I just don't think it's going to work. It feels, like, it feels in, in some of the things that we've been reading and conversations we've been having that there is a, a surge or at least a, a good strong voice of evangelicals, people who love Jesus or are trying to follow in his way, who are pro-life but who are pro-life in a sense of being pro, um, being feminists and being pro-health care and being pro-maternity leave and pro-care for the poor and all these kinds of things that could actually have a a significant difference. I mean, there's a whole strain of evangelicalism that thinks along those lines No, that's right. And and, and a lot of people have have, uh, criticized the the so-called pro-life movement as being, what, pro-birth, right? Right. (laughs) And, and, And really not caring all that much about uh, the the individual beyond that. Okay. Does uh, somebody else have a question? Yeah. Totally separate topic. I think it was a really nice way to categorize the, the evangelical movement by quarter centuries. Yes, right. What do you see us looking back at this quarter century and saying, uh. this is what was happening? <laughs> and what do you possibly foresee the next quarter century? Yeah. Yeah, I usually shrug off these questions by saying I'm a historian, not a prognosticator. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, um, I'm, I'm not going to... Uh, let's see if I can circle around this question. But I didn't, I didn't get a chance to elaborate what I meant about the worldliness as a characterization of the final quarter of the 20th century. When I was growing up within evangelicalism, the mantra was, Lord, come quickly, right? Premillennialism. Right, I'm getting. I'm, I love. I, I, I love getting people here roughly my own age because I, they understand I'm not making this up. Um, Lord, come quickly. What happened? What, what's happened in, in recent days? You, you don't hear that too much anymore, do you? What's happened? Ah, okay. Evangelicals beginning in the late '70s. Remember the final quarter of the 20th century. They became they became politicized. 1980, 
They threw their weight around politically. They won the election for Ronald Reagan. I mean, you can make that argument that they actually won the election for Ronald Reagan. That's, it's more complicated than that. But you can make that argument. 1984, you know, they, they continued to be very influential politically. They uh, certainly were very influential in terms of media, with the rise of the televangelists and so forth, right? And by the way, what happened with evangelicalism during the 1980s? Anybody remember, what was, what was, what was the, 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 the huge movement within evangelicalism in the 1980s? Uh, that would be the 70s. Yeah, yeah. Prosperity theology? What was happening in the culture? Yeah. Trickle-down economics, Reaganomics. It was a kind of spiritualized Reaganism. So all the rage. It's still around, by the way, but it's not you know, quite as much as it was. You know, uh, the, the, all these TV preachers promising that Jesus was just itching to get you that vacation home and that new. What's the car dealer down? I never heard of this car before. McLaren or McLaren. something. Yeah, never heard of this before. I'm, I'm from Vermont. What do I know about cars? Um, it, was, it was all the rage. So, evangelicals in the last quarter of the 20th century. They're becoming upwardly mobile. And whereas when I was growing up in evangelicalism in the 50s, 60s, that was, Lord, come quickly, by the 1990s was, Lord, yeah, take your time. We're doing fine. <laughs> right? So premillennialism has pretty much fallen off the table as evangelicals became more worldly. They became more worldly because of political success, media success, prosperity theology. You can't get any more worldly than prosperity gospel. I mean, it's not gospel. It's prosperity theology. It's not, there's, not, there's nothing gospel about that. Right? So that's the era of worldliness. Now, I was asked, where, where are we today? You know, I, uh, I mean, I, I, uh, ask me in 20 years. <laughs> um, I, I think... I, things are happening right now. A, a part of it is the, is the uh, generational thing. Uh, I, I, th I do think we're at a crossroads. Uh, we have to decide if we're serious about following Jesus and listening what Jesus is asking us to do. Um, I, and I think that will have all sorts of implications for how we behave in the world and how we vote, how we act politically, culturally. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I will return to an overall theme. Um, I've done a kind of quick, albeit sporadic, sketch of evangelicalism in American history. But I think the genius of evangelicalism has been and continues to be that evangelicals know how to speak the vernacular of the people. This church is an example of that. You are tapping into something in the community, and, and it's, you know, it's the, it's the, it's nothing new, but the, you know, the, it's the praise band, it's, 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 it's all this stuff, and there's nothing wrong with it, it's, it's, it's great. Um, but evangelicals are always adapting, uh, from George Whitfield and the open-air preaching with his dramatic flourishes in the 19th century, to the camp meeting preachers of the, uh, of the 19th century, did I say 1930, I mean, uh, 18th century, with Whitfield. Uh, the the circuit riders bringing the gospel to the people on the frontier, 
Uh, it was an innovative approach to evangelism. The coal porters track, uh, selling Bibles and tracts, riding the train lines in the later part of the 19th century. In the 20th century, you had the big urban evangelism of Billy Sunday and Billy Graham. And now in the 21st century, you have social media, which I don't begin to understand. I, you guys can do that stuff. I have no idea what this is all about. But, you know, this is, but evangelicalism is adapting to that. Yeah. I'm sure you're on, you're the church is on something or other, right? And, and that's, that's part of who you are. But evangelicalism always knows how to speak the argot, of the, the vernacular yeah. of the people. And that's the great genius of, of, of the movement. So I... I yeah. And as a long sort of evasive answer to your question, I think evangelicals will continue to do that, find a way to do that. We'll be okay. I'm All sure right. I want to be sensitive to time. I've got a couple more, and then if anybody else does. Um, sexual identity issues and are still a big uh, conversation of the, ch- of, of the church. And, you know, the InterVarsity just released mm-hmm. a statement. I, I mentioned this to mm-hmm. you earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and not so much the theological issues of it. But my question is, the, the recent decision of Obergefell v. Hodges that happened in the Supreme Court just this last summer, yeah. um, I think the, the response once again was like, us evangelicals who hold to particular views yeah. are once again under attack, or the culture is against. I, I see some of the same reverberations as in your work of how evangelicals have responded to the Scopes trial. It's, yeah. it, it's very similar. So I'm kind of curious, do you, do you see any parallel? Am I crazy for drawing any parallels and then trying to draw some lessons in uh, oh boy. from... Sorry. Yeah. No, I, no, this is, I mean, this is a significant and important issue for sure. our community. Sure and, it is. And, yeah, sure it is. It's, it's, it's a tough one. I... I um, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I shudder to think about it now. But I, when I was growing up in the, you know, what high school, college years, sixties and seventies, I remember making disparaging comments about gay people, it, and a lot of it was because I didn't understand it. Um, I think even within evangelicalism, there has been uh, a recognition that it's that sexual identity is not something that is volitional. I, you remember the, with the, they've, I think I've kind of stopped it now, but the religious right used to talk about gay lifestyle, right? And, and the inference behind that term was that it's something you choose, right? You know, I'm going to be goth or I'm going to be, I don't know, does that, does that even exist anymore? Or I'm going to be a hippie or something, or I'm going to be gay. Uh, and I remember very clearly my first my first doctoral student is a wonderful man who's 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 gay, and he's been a wonderful friend to me over the years. And I remember him saying once, he says, "Gay lifestyle. Why would anybody choose to be gay?" I mean, he, he just it was just he's uncomprehending because of what he had to face on a daily basis for for many years because he was a gay man, particularly because he grew up in Alabama. Um, so I, you know, my own thinking has changed on this, and I think that uh, I think many evangelicals are recognizing it's not a volition. You know, being gay is not something you choose. It is who you are. It's baked into your 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 being. And then I think you, the if you acknowledge that, then I think the conversation shifts to what would Jesus do. Uh, what is God's 
disposition toward his own creation. And I think it's, I find it a whole lot more difficult to be condemnatory when I begin to frame the conversation in those terms. Now, people who would want to to, to uh, frame the conversation in terms of religious liberty and so forth, uh, um, I, 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 I just don't, I don't, I, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy with that. I, I, I think, you know, there's the, one of the dog whistle uh, issues in this campaign for evangelicals is the repeal of the Johnson Amendment. The Johnson Amendment was pushed through Congress in 1954 by Lyndon Johnson, and it prohibits uh, tax-exempt organizations from being overtly political. So it means that, to, I assume Spark is tax-exempt. I hope so. Okay. Yeah. It, it, it prohibits you from, from sitting here and, and, and making an overt political right. endorsement. Well, now, the, the Trump campaign and Pence in particular have tried to, to play this up as a religious liberty issue. Well, all that this does is ensure that taxpayers are not supporting your partisanship, right? Uh, if, if you want to be a tax-exempt organization, you have to agree by certain rules. And since 1954, most churches, most religious organizations have thought, well, this is a pretty good deal. You know, I, I don't have to pay property taxes or anything else, and all I have to do is, is uh, refrain from, from making political endorsements. Well, all of a sudden now, this is a big deal in the, in the Trump camp and, and with, with the Trump and Pence uh, ticket. And you know, it, let me be clear. You can make any political endorsement you want. All you have to do is give up your tax exemption. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is actually one of my other questions. We have um, a host of evangelicals who have publicly written and endorsed a candidate. Yeah. And they are part of Christian mm-hmm. or religious organizations. And I'm just kind of curious, how in the world can that exist today? How, and how, how is that viable? How is that legal? How is that permissible? Well, it's not, it's not legal, but uh, the, the IRS and, and, and the various administrations have been reluctant to, to enforce it. So that's, yeah. that's where, we're, where, um, where we are. Dr. Balmer writes um, beautifully on kind of the development of the separation of church and state and the making of evangelicalism, something I'd recommend. Does anybody else have a question? It's, it's 8.10, so I want to cl- come to a close soon just to be honoring, but I also want to make sure we get questions in. So as a follower of Jesus, how do we respond to Facebook posts and other conversations that we are having during this political season from your perspective? Well, uh, I, you know, I, I think you need to just respond with graciousness and particularly with humility. Humility is a wonderful, wonderful Christian virtue, I think. And, and, and it means not merely being self-effacing, and that's not the best best uh, definition of humility. Humility means a recognition that I may not know everything that I think I know. (laughs) And I I may not be right about this, but this is my best uh, effort, my best best take on on the situation. Um, I think, you know, we... There's something about running for president that tends to kind of crowd out humility, and particularly in this election year. Uh, But... Humility is a pretty good thing to cultivate, I think, and say, you know, listen, this is how I understand my faith. 
This is how I understand the mandates of, of the Bible, the example of Jesus. And I may not have it right, but this is how I'll proceed. I think that's, that's, that's a pretty good disposition to cultivate. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go there really quickly. I just want to, I know, I just I have to ask. Franklin Graham posted... Uh, the crude comments made by Donald J. Trump more than 11 years ago cannot be defended, but the godless progressive agenda of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton likewise cannot be defended. I am not endorsing any candidates in this election. <laughs> I have said it throughout this presidential campaign, and I will say it again. Both candidates are flawed. The, and here's, here's the key piece. The only hope for the United States is God. Our nation's many sins have permeated our society leading us to where we are today. But as Christians, we can't back down from our responsibility to remain engaged in the politics of our nation. On November 8, we will all have a choice to make. The two candidates have very different visions for the future of America. The most important issue of this election is the Supreme Court. That impacts everything. There is no question Trump and Clinton's scandals might be news for the moment, but who they appoint to the Supreme Court will remake the fabric of our society for our children and our grandchildren for generations to come. Now, I mention that because, uh, again, it, there, I, I guess I read some resonance from some of the things that I've read in your work about the history of evangelicals promoting a particular way of thinking that if we can get these right people into positions of power, that's going to... Yeah. you know, radically changed. So I'm just kind of curious yeah. what your historical, not necessarily what your emotional response is to Franklin Graham, but yeah. what it feels, I guess, if I'm really honest, that kind of statement feels a little bit misguided when it comes to the very roots of who we have been historically as evangelicals, I yeah. suppose. Yeah. Is that correct? Am I off base? What yeah. would you say? I think, yeah. Uh, I, I said earlier that, that Billy Graham made a conscious decision early in his career to forsake the narrow sectarian fundamentalism of his childhood in favor of a broader, more capacious evangelicalism. Franklin Graham did the opposite. Right. And I, I just, I, 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 I find that difficult. Okay. To, to, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to put you on this no, spot either. I, yeah, I mean, if you want to read things I've written about Franklin Graham, go to my website. There's okay. plenty of stuff. Okay. Um, I hope you've enjoyed our time. His articles are also powerful, and they're very moving. And my encouragement to our congregation is to um, really deeply consider people like Dr. Balmer in this, in this conversation and allow his work, and not necessarily, um, as, as we've said, that you have to take his opinion, but you learn from that history. You learn from that perspective, and that helps you be a much more informed citizen and engaged uh, Christian and, and follower of Jesus in this. And I hope also, you know, as you all know, reputation of God is a core value of Spark, and how we talk about and engage in politics in this particular season is in, in many ways for us a reflection of the reputation of God in this world, and we want to elevate that reputation as best as we can. So buy his books, check out the website, um, check out some, the articles. We encourage you to do that. And uh, would you, uh, for all of you who stayed so late, thank you so much. Give uh, Dr. Randall Bomber one last round of applause. Appreciate you. Thank you.